Church family, turn with me if you have your copy of God's Word to Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8. Now, when we started walking line by line, verse by verse through the book of Leviticus, I wondered if you had ever heard a sermon series from the book of Leviticus, and many of you said that you haven't. I can almost guarantee that you've never heard an Easter sermon uh, preached from the book of Leviticus. Anybody? Well, this is, uh, this is what we do here at uh, First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, is we're going to continue in our study through God's Word um, and celebrate the resurrection through it. So Leviticus chapter 8 and 9 this morning. Now, we're not going to read chapters 8 and 9, though I'm tempted to do so because it's really great. Um, but we are going to read the first uh, five verses of chapter 8, uh, and then we will pray and then dive right in. Leviticus chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil, a bull as a sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Father, I do thank you already for the worship that has been lifted up to you this morning, because even that, Father, is a fruit of the grace that you have so abundantly poured out on your people through Christ. Now, Lord, we pray as we encounter your word for the grace to hear, to understand, for the grace to apply your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit might impress this word upon our hearts, that we might be convicted where conviction is needed, that we might be strengthened where strength is needed. Father, we might be encouraged to live for our risen Savior and to love you in Christ. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay. So we are going to cover... Leviticus chapter 8 and chapter 9 this morning. And for those of you who are here on a regular basis, you know that's no small feat. But before you get too excited, let me explain. We're going to look at two chapters this morning, yes. But we're also going to be looking at these two chapters next week. <laughs> we're going to look at them as, as a whole. And, and the week of, of this week, the plan is to really look in Leviticus 8 and 9 and unearth the riches that are communicated here in the context of Leviticus at the foot of Mount Sinai as God is speaking through his holy servant Moses to his holy people Israel. And next week, I want to look at this same passage in light of what we call biblical theology, which is the understanding that the Bible is one story from start to finish. And so, Next week, we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 8 and 9 as it takes place on the whole. That's the broader context of redemptive history as it's revealed in God's Word. So that's the plan. And because of that, you're going to have to pay close attention this week in order for next week to be more fruitful for you. And also, I mean, I know we have a lot of visitors here, but you're going to have to come back next week as well. I don't care... Just to, if you're staying with in-laws, you know, just extend the stay for a full week. Um, you've gotten everything we have to offer in Florida. Who predicted it be cold and wet this morning? Anybody? Don't worry. It'll be 80 degrees by 1 o'clock today. So, all right. But this is 
where we're at. Maybe not. Who knows? So there's a catch here. Here's the big idea of Leviticus chapter 8 and 9. This is very important. The big idea of this text is this. God provides a way through a mediator for fellowship with his people. God provides a way through a mediator for fellowship with his people. I believe that's already in your outline. But if you're a note taker and you do that on paper, don't worry. Because that is going to serve as our very outline this morning. God provides a way through a mediator for fellowship with his people. Now I want us to see that in the text itself. In Leviticus chapter 8, we see at the very beginning that God is the one who provides a way. God provides Away. Really, we've already seen this throughout Leviticus as a whole. It is God who is speaking to his holy servant Moses, again instructing his holy people on how they are to bring offerings to him up to this point. How they are to maintain their relationship with him and worship him. But, but now there's a shift in Leviticus chapter 8. See, in the first seven chapters in Leviticus 1, it says the Lord calls to Moses and speaks to him from the tent of meeting, telling him to speak to the people of Israel. And we've seen that refrain time and time again as we move through these first seven chapters. Speak to the people of Israel. Moses, speak to the high priest. Speak to the people of Israel. Here at the beginning of chapter 8, what do we read in the very first two verses? We read, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take. It's no longer time for speaking. Now it's a time of action. So it's no longer speak to the people or speak to the priest, but Take Aaron and his sons. Gather that which I have told you to gather and prepare the priest for ordination. The instructions have been given and now it's time to start the engine. It's time to inaugurate the priesthood. The engagement is drawing to an end and the wedding ceremony is about to take place. The Lord has instructed and now it's time to put his plan into action. On this point though, remember this. It's the Lord's prerogative to command and direct his people. The entire ceremony that we're about to read, it's the Lord's idea. It's the Lord who's directing and commanding. They are not free to make this up as they go. In fact, the refrain through chapter 8, time and time again, is the Lord commanded. We see Moses does as the Lord commanded. Moses gathers everyone and everything they needed in verse 4. Aaron is washed and dressed as the Lord commanded. That's in verse 9 of chapter 8. The tent of meeting, altar, and Aaron himself were anointed and consecrated as the Lord commanded. Aaron's sons were dressed as the Lord commanded. Verse 13. The sin offering was offered just as the Lord commanded. You getting the hang of this a little bit? Verse 17. The burnt offering as the Lord... Just waking you up a little bit. Verse 21. The ordination offering as the Lord, verse 26, 29. And then this whole chapter ends in verse 36. It ends this way. So Aaron and his sons did all the things the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. All of this was the command of the Lord, his ordination, his direction, his instigation, his initiation. So what's the point here? The point is God provided a way. It was his idea and he did it. The point is, this is not a picture of man finding God. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. This is God calling and drawing man. Do you see this? 
See, Israel is about to put in action all that God has instructed them to do. But up until this point, Israel has been passive. In fact, the only time that Israel has ever took initiation to worship God, it ended very, very badly. Did it not? Do you know what I'm talking about? It was another disaster. You remember the story at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses went up to fellowship with God, so the people said, we need to make us a God to worship. We want to worship this God that has brought us out of Egypt, but they want to do it their way, and they want to do it now. That's the definition of good initiative, poor judgment. <laughs> Israel wanted to worship, and so listen, Aaron decided to help them. So they offer gifts. That sounds like a good idea. It seems like something you do to worship God. So they give gold. Aaron takes the gifts and offers it on fire. Seems reasonable. Out comes a golden calf. I mean, what are they to do but worship and celebrate? So they do. Utter folly. This is nothing less than a picture of man in his own will and wisdom approaching God. Every time man approaches or attempts to approach God in his own worship, in his own way, in his own time, the end result is always sin. This is the picture throughout Scripture. Man has been estranged from God. Our fellowship with God has been broken. There's been a divide between us and God. And the reality is there's only one who can bridge that divide, and it's God himself. But God does. God provides a way. God rescued his people and makes a way for them to enjoy fellowship. That's the picture we see. God rescues his people and he's the one who initiates and plans a way for them to enjoy fellowship. This goes against the grain of our postmodern culture in every single fashion of the word. It doesn't really matter who you worship or how you worship. If your intentions are pure, then it is good worship. Friends, God is the one who decides how he is to be worshipped. He is the one who provides the way in which you are to be saved, not you. Therefore, hear his word and heed it. So God provided a way. And what was his way? God provided a way through a mediator. God provided a way through a mediator. It was a mediatorial office, a priesthood. This is the way God provided to repair and maintain fellowship with his people. And so in, in chapters 8 and 9 of Leviticus, really, they're the story of this ordination and inauguration of the priesthood, the mediatorial office. The ordination ceremony, as, you, as hopefully you were able to read through it this week, you can probably pick up on the fact that it was a, symbol, it was a ceremony that was rich with symbolism. The ordination ceremony is a symbolically rich event. We're going to walk through it, um, and I want you to follow with me some of the things that happened here. I want to consider some of this ordination ceremony. Uh, it was a symbolically rich event. The first thing we see is that Moses takes Aaron and, and washes him. I could not help but picture a sponge bath, um, and that's not exactly what it was, uh, but he went through a ceremonial washing. Uh, and this was, of course, symbolic of their need to be cleansed of their sin. The, the priests, both Aaron and his sons, were as much sinners as the rest of the Israelites. Their need to be cleansed of their sins, it was critical. And so keep in mind that the new high priest, remember this, the new high priest is Aaron. He is the one who not too long ago offered up the golden calf to be worshipped. Aaron. 
And here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai with the whole golden calf incident fresh in their minds. And God is calling Aaron forward to be high priest, to serve at his holy altar in his holy place. It is only by God's mercy and sovereign calling that Aaron is selected to be high priest. Aaron, the great compromiser, is about to become the leader of worship in Israel. But friends, isn't that what our God does? Doesn't he have a reputation for this? Doesn't he take a Christ-hating, church-destroying, Christian-killing person and make him the most effective gospel minister that the church has ever known? Doesn't he take a Saul of Tarsus and turn him into a Paul? Here's the point. Friend, there is nothing in your past that can possibly hinder God from using you in effective ways for his honor and glory. This is something I've come in contact with so much more recently. It seems that we think that our sin is bigger than God's mercy. What we've done in the past, what we've already even supposedly repented of and no longer feel shame for, it is too big for God. Friends, it's not. There's nothing. I I have that question all the time. I think a brother even asked me this week who's witnessing to somebody who thinks they were too far off for God. I asked them, well, have they, they ever killed any Christians? For worship? Have they ever murdered people for being Christians? No. Paul did. (laughs) How'd that work out? Did God save Paul? Absolutely. He turned him into arguably one of the greatest Christians, if not the greatest Christian that ever lived. Friends, you're not too far from God. There's no way. There's no possible way. And so he washes him. After the sponge bath, uh, Aaron was dressed for his new role. He's washed and then he's dressed. And and look at this. Notice Aaron's attire is completely different than his son's because he's the high priest. This was interesting this week. So Aaron's set apart with a coat, a robe, an ephod, a breastpiece carrying the Urim and the Thummim, which was not Lord of the Rings dwarfs, which I thought that was what that was. It sounded very familiar. Um, And then finally the turban. They were just, they were stones used to cast lots, I believe. Uh, The golden plate on the front called the Holy Crown was placed upon his head. And listen, this clothing is important. Probably just reading, you kind of picked up on that. It's not completely different from ceremony in our old culture. right? The the bride is easily identifiable at the wedding ceremony because she's wearing a wedding dress. right? She is set apart. It's easy to identify her. Well, the same way a group of people gathered together all dressed in black automatically makes you think they might be mourning. There might be a funeral being attended. A soldier is marked out for his specific office and calling by his uniform. This is common to us. Well, likewise, the clothing of the high priest conveys his new state and role. He is now wholly set apart for the specific work of the Lord. He's a royal attendant mediating for the people of Israel before the throne of God. So he's washed, he's dressed, then he's consecrated or anointed with oil in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 8, if you're following along. This anointing oil was used to consecrate things, to to make them holy, as it says in Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus 30, you can find the composition of this oil. It consisted of very expensive elements that were mixed together by a professional perfumer. And this concoction was only to be used to make things holy. The Lord designated it for himself for this specific purpose. And so Aaron takes the oil, he anoints the tabernacle and everything in it, and then Aaron would pour it over his own head, signifying that he had been empowered for the service of the Lord. Then Aaron's sons in verse 13 are clothed in much 
similar attire, but yet all the same, setting them apart as holy for their specific task. And then there were offerings made. Through verses 14 through 21, there are these offerings. Notice that Moses actually serves as the priest in this ordination ceremony. He's the one who sacrifices without an official priesthood even established. He offers a purification for our sin offering, a burnt offering, and an ordination offering, which is just a form of the fellowship or peace offering. All those offerings are things we've looked at in detail and depth over the last couple of months. We understand their significance. right? The priest offered a sin offering... First, to atone for their sin, to purify the altar, to get rid of the defilement their sin had caused. And then the priest offered a burnt offering for atonement for their sins, to communicate their whole life devotion to the Lord, celebrating the covenant with their Lord and the fellowship it ensures. So they have washed, clothed, anointed, and then purified. I mean, that's already a lot. They should be ready to take on the duties and responsibilities. They are clean and pure Yet the ordination ceremony continues. It's not done. Now you take some of the blood and the oil off the altar and splash them with it. Sprinkle it on their clothing. Consecrate, consecrating and assuring that it is holy and set apart. So now here's what we've got. This is, the, ceremony, this is the, the, the ordination ceremony. You ready? I'm so glad I did not do this when I was ordained as a pastor, by the way. Uh, they are washed, dressed, anointed, atoned for, forgiven, purified, and sprinkled. Now it's time to celebrate. So here's where we say amen. At the end of this, they eat a covenant meal. (laughs) It's a celebration. They eat a meal before the Lord, ratifying their covenant with the Lord and celebrating what God has done for them. They are instructed to eat it at the entrance of the tent of meeting, conveying fellowship with the Lord who dwelled in the palace tent. And so that was the quick version of chapter 8 of the ceremony of ordination. But now Aaron is ready to fulfill his calling as priest and be mediator before the people of God, right? No. That's day one of seven days of the exact same ceremony. Day in and day out. Did that strike anybody as a little much? I mean, let, let's be honest. Uh, Easter, is, Easter is a big day for us at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, right? Like if you cook breakfast here and you're a deacon, you're up here at 5.45 a.m. cooking till sunrise service at 7.30. Then you eat breakfast at 8. You go to, to Sunday school at 9. Then, or if you're in our class, 9.20. Uh, and then... You come in here at 1015 to worship. How many of you got Easter plans after this? Time of family? All right, it's a big day. That's one day. Right? Now imagine having to do this ceremony, even the same one we did today, seven days in a row. Just a little extravagant maybe? One day seems like a lot. Aaron was washed, clothed in these special clothes. Everything else is anointed. These offerings had to take time. He offers sin offerings, burnt offerings, ordination offerings. He's smeared with blood. He participates in the covenant ratification meal before the tent of God. Then he's told, all right, see you tomorrow. Same thing. 6 a.m., same thing. Whole thing over again. I mean, imagine the emotional, physical drain. It just seems exhausting. I mean, think about this. Think about a a bride and groom at the end of their wedding day, being exhausted. And what have you told them after the ceremony? Okay, we'll see you guys tomorrow. We need to do this six more times before you're actually married. That would seem like a lot, wouldn't it? So why would the Lord command the ceremony to be repeated seven times over seven days? It begs the question. 
Simply put, here's the answer. It's because God is providing a way through a mediator for fellowship with his people. That's why. Now, that may not seem on the surface to actually answer the question, but listen. Remember, the priests were called to serve in the presence of a holy and just king who would not simply ignore sin and immorality. They were mediators, and and mediators must be holy. For Israel to maintain their fellowship with God, they would need somebody to mediate that relationship. Sin would need to be atoned for. The defiling consequences of sin would need to be cleaned up. Guilt would need to be removed. This would require a sacrifice, and we have seen this throughout Leviticus. One life would have to be given for another. Blood would have to be shed. The substitutionary sacrifice of the bulls, rams, sheep and and goats would have to atone for those sins. God is providing a way through a mediator for fellowship. And so the question, if it's true that all these sacrifices have to be made, we come to the point when we ask, Well, who in the world is going to dare approach the altar of the very presence of God and make these sacrifices? See, see, Israel knew what David would later explain and state in Psalm 24. They have seen God descend in power. They are aware of his holiness. So they understood well what David wrote in Psalm 24, verse 3, where he says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Who? David answers his own question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. That's who. Okay, easy enough. But Aaron had dirty hands. (laughs) I mean, Aaron's hands were filthy. Aaron had an unclean heart. I I know I'm I'm dragging the poor guy's name through the mud, but but guys, the whole golden calf thing was huge. And that, that was really a symptom of just a much deeper issue. And so how in the world was Aaron going to stand in the Lord's holy place? That's the question. And the answer is God commands this ordination ceremony. That is how Aaron is going to stand between God and his people. That is how he's going to approach the altar without being fearful or consumed himself. And that is how he's going to enter the most holy place once a year in order to atone for the sins of the people. The priest would need to be washed clothed in holy garments, consecrated to offer sacrifices, be purified, have their holy garments sprinkled with the most holy blood and oil, then eat a celebrate celebratory covenant meal with the Lord. And they would need to do that for seven days before Aaron would be even ready to offer a single sacrifice on the altar. Here's why. It's because this is life or death business. This is serious. See, seven days conveyed the seriousness of this process. It conveyed the consecration of Aaron and his sons. It was to be thorough and complete. The atonement was to be fully accomplished. That's why seven days. It's because Israel needed a mediator. And that mediator had to be holy. See, this is God providing a way. Don't miss this. This is God providing his way through a mediator for fellowship. And praise God, fellowship is exactly what's accomplished in chapter 9. Chapter 9 describes what happened on day 8. The day after the ordination ceremony. In a word, it's an inauguration. 
Aaron has been ordained, consecrated, purified, and now he's ready to serve in the official capacity as high priest. He is their mediator. So Moses summons Aaron. He summons his sons and the elders of Israel and says, Okay, Aaron, you're up, buddy. Your turn. It's time to do what the Lord has called you to do. You are the high priest, the mediator between God and his people. And notice why Aaron's through this. Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. And the Lord, and the glory of the Lord, excuse me, will appear to you. Say it very clearly. This is why. So that the glory of the Lord will appear to you. That is, that they might have fellowship with God. See, fellowship is the goal in all of this. It really is. If it's not clear enough there, then you can even go back to Exodus, where the Lord first gives instructions on the garments and consecration of God's holy priest and Exodus 28 and 29, what we find at the very end of Exodus 29 is that explanation why they were going to go through all this work in order to preserve a priesthood. This is why. God himself says this in Exodus 29, 44 through 46. He says, I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priest. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, that's the goal. That's the whole point in this. I am the Lord their God. Fellowship is the goal. Reconciliation, fellowship, maintenance of that covenantal relationship between Israel and their God. It's the point of everything we see in these two chapters. God provided a way through a mediator for fellowship with his people. So Moses tells his brother to do what the Lord tells him to do. And Aaron obeys. And I love this. You want to know what the first thing that this dude does as his role in high priest. You know what he does? He offers a purification offering on behalf of himself. It's the first thing he does. I mean, the guy has just been consecrated over seven days, washed seven times, clothed seven times, anointed seven times over seven days. He has offered seven days worth of sacrifices. He has purified himself with blood seven times. He's been sprinkled seven times. He had seven covenant meals over seven days. And the first thing he does, I think I'm going to offer a sacrifice. I think I'm going to offer a sin offering. Incredible. Right? If you have the same picture in my mind that I have right now, and you may not, but if you're capturing the idea here at all, would you maybe say that it's possible that we completely underestimate the seriousness of our sin? Like, listen, here's the point. That's hard for us to sit and hear about somebody doing this for seven days. Like, it's a difficult text to, to, to wrap our brains around, especially those of us who are tired, but you're not even doing this. Like, we don't have this ceremony here. We haven't asked you to do this in any way, shape, or form. But Moses, Aaron knows this is exactly what's needed for the Lord to have his mediator so he can have fellowship with his people because of our sinfulness. Is it possible that we, we just really underestimate the seriousness of our, of our sin? Is it possible that we underestimate the gravity of our sinful nature? Seven days he was consecrated, so on the first day he could wake up and offer a sin offering for himself. And then Aaron sacrifices for the people in verses 15 through 21. And they offer a burnt offering, a grain offering, and a peace offering, which, which Aaron finishes with the sacrifices. He lifts his hands up toward the people, and then he blesses them in verses 22 and 23. I'm, I'm a strong believer, firm believer, that in Numbers we actually read exactly what this blessing consists of. Number 6, 22 through 27, we've read this at our benediction many times. 
It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Praise God. And so the goal was fellowship. But here's the result. The result of Aaron's mediation, blessing, is the appearance of the Lord. Here now the glory of the Lord appears to the people. Why? Because God provided a way through a mediator for fellowship with his people. Now I want to bring this full circle. We began by looking at the fact that this entire process was initiated, directed, and commanded by God himself. It was ultimately accomplished by the Lord. God provided the way. He's the one who made fellowship possible. We've already considered quite a bit through our study in Leviticus, and rightly so, looking at the holiness of God. He is indeed holy. He's holier than you think he is. You think he's pretty holy right now? He's holier than that. In doing so, as we focus on the holiness of God, we have been forced to consider at great length our own sinfulness. You may think you're pretty sinful. You're more sinful than that. <laughs> Whatever you're thinking of, you're, you, you are a greater sinner than even that you think. We've been forced to look at our own desperate need, therefore, for God's gracious intervention. I mean, guys, we serve a holy God, and please do not minimize that. He's perfectly just, faultlessly moral, utterly powerful, and beyond compare in all of creation, certainly. We've seen it time and time again. God is indeed holy. We are indeed sinful. Even God's holy people have a sin problem that has to be dealt with day in and day out. Yet, yet, here's the beauty of this text. The Lord loves his people and desires fellowship with them. See, we know that God is holy, and we know that we are sinful. We know that God does not need us. He does not need our fellowship. He does not need our praise or honor or any other thing. He lacks absolutely nothing. But this only serves to make his love for us that much more incredible. That he willingly pursues and rescues them. That he willingly makes a way for fellowship with them. And there's a great application for us here this morning. It is this. Change your mind. Here's how. Know that you are loved. In chapters 8 and 9, we see this very thing. It is an expression of deep love. A sincere desire for unbroken fellowship with God's people. See, we're so disconnected from that that we hear that and we think, that doesn't sound very loving at all. But if it doesn't, then you simply don't know God's holiness, nor do you own, know your own sinfulness. When you recognize how holy God is, how sinful you are, the fact that he would desire to only make it seven days of consecration to make a mediator so he could have fellowship with his people is mind-boggling. That it was only seven days of purification should just melt your brain. It's so easy to miss this. It, it took seven days of washing, dressing, anointing, offering, sprinkling, eating, just to prepare Aaron to lead someone in offering a sacrifice. And if you read through that, let's be honest, it, it doesn't just drum up a picture of you crawling into your father's lap. You read through Leviticus 8 and 9, that's probably not the emotion that's stirred. You don't get to the end of chapter 9 and think, Abba, Father... <laughs> You're kind of overwhelmed by God's 
holiness and his sovereign power. And really what it conveys in these two chapters is, is this chasm, a nearly unbridgeable divide between us and God. Yet this is what we cannot miss. Friends, there was, there was no need for God to do this. And though there was no need for God to do so, he's the one who bridges that divide. Do you get that? The Lord desired fellowship with his people. He wanted to be their God and wanted them to be his people. Whatever else that ceremony may convey, it most certainly conveyed that the Lord was committed to his people. And that's really what this is all about. Yes, of course. This ultimately focuses us and forces us to look more to that perfect mediation accomplished through the life, death, and yes, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But don't even miss his love here in chapters 8 and 9. This is our God. His loving kindness is better than life. He is faithful and committed to protecting his fellowship with his people and preserving his relationship with them. So here's what I want you to hear. If you've maybe tuned out through part of that, listen to this part. Christian, you are loved by God. Deeply, truly, and significantly loved by God. That is the heart of the Bible, but it's also at the heart of Leviticus as well. As God commands his people and they do all he has commanded, it is ultimately that he might reveal his glory and maintain his fellowship with his people, that he might be their God and they might be his people. That's the covenant formula, and that's what's at the heart of fellowship. And so the Lord provided a way through a mediator for fellowship. So how much more should we be sure of the Lord's love for us and desire for fellowship this side of the cross and resurrection? Friends, if we just unpacked Leviticus 8 and 9 and saw that God's desire to even consecrate himself for a mediator amongst a sinful people should be a great display of his love for you, how much more is the empty tomb a display of his love for his people? That he would send his son to be the perfect mediator, to be God in flesh, to bear the sins that you rightly committed and rightly deserved the punishment for, that he bore them in himself and then gave you the gift of his righteousness so that you could be reconciled and redeemed to him, so you could conquer that last enemy to be destroyed, which is death. How much more should you this side of the cross see the day of Easter and celebrate the fact that a holy God loves his people? He loves you. I'm telling you, it's on every page of Scripture. And if this is the case, if we can truly say in the pages of Leviticus 8 and 9 that God is acting faithfully on behalf of Israel to maintain fellowship with them, that this is a true expression of his love and care for them, friends, then how much more this side of the cross and resurrection? God gave his precious only begotten son to die in our place. He has provided a way through Jesus Christ for us to have fellowship with him forever. Christian, know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are beloved. Despite your experience, your past, despite what your thoughts or emotions may tell you, this truth comes from God's word himself. You are beloved. And if you struggle with knowing that you're loved by God, I'm telling you, it's on every page of scripture. 
God provided a way through a mediator for fellowship with his people. We do nothing in that pursuit. We are not the ones who loved God, but he loved us first. We're going to see it even more clearly next week. But even now, it would challenge your thinking. Change the way you think. You are beloved. And then secondly, and finally, very quickly, change your thinking, but change your behavior. Change your behavior. Seek fellowship with God. Listen, if this is all for fellowship with God's people, is our response a similar desire for fellowship with our God? Do we look at the fact that God did this just in order to have fellowship with you? And our response is, we believe that we're really something. Well, of course. Or do we recognize, I don't deserve that fellowship. And it's the fuel that drives us to a greater and deeper fellowship with him. I mean, listen, very quickly, two ways to apply this, I'm done, I promise. Very quickly, you have an open invitation to speak to the Lord whenever you want. You recognize the privilege that is? You recognize the gift that is? You have an open invitation to speak to the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the very stars into existence and knows the numbers of hairs upon your head. An open invitation to talk to him however you want, whenever you want. Do you see that? Are you holding conversations with your father on a daily basis? That's an expression of love. Okay, God himself, that same God, has spoken to you. He has said things to you that he desires for you to know, to meditate upon, to trust in and understand. Do you listen? Do you read his words? Friends, he loves you more deeply and truly than you've ever imagined. Our response to that should be a change of thinking to say, yes, praise God, I'm loved. But it should also be, therefore, a change of behavior. If our God has done this to have fellowship with us, do we even seek fellowship with him? Oh, I hope that we do. Praise God that God provided a way through a mediator to have fellowship with his people. The resurrection screams that today and every day. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? Gracious Father, you know our hearts. You know we struggle to know and believe that we are beloved. The reality is, it's very tempting for us to say that we're honoring you when we are just as guilty as those who would like to completely ignore your holiness, justice, and focus only on your love. Lord, we are no less guilty if we only see you as far and transcendent, if we only see you as high and lifted up, yet fail to see you condescend to win for yourself a people, to secure our fellowship with you out of a great love and desire to be our God. We are deeply, sincerely, and truly loved, and this, Lord, ought to mesmerize us. It's the great mystery 
of the universe of why a holy God would love so deeply and truly a people such as us. Father, please help us to know it and to believe it. Help us not to neglect the means of fellowship which you grant us. Your word, prayer, gathering with the saints, singing songs of praise to you, family worship even. Lord, give us an unquenchable desire for that fellowship which you prize so highly that you were willing to send your son to secure it. We pray this in his precious, holy name. Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen. Praise God for his, his grace and mercy today. Um, we come now to the time of our invitation, which is also the closing of our service. Um, we have our invitation opportunity after our service because we don't want to be hindered by any um, sort of amount of times we can sing a chorus or anything uh, whatsoever. We want to take as much time as, as we possibly can to do work today. And so the application is very clear for those of us who are in Christ. Do you know that you're loved? If you do know that you are loved, how does it drive your change of behavior, your desire to seek fellowship with your Father who has gone to such great lengths to provide a mediator for you in His Son, Jesus Christ? But maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Uh, maybe you're here and this message is new to you. Um, I pray that you would hear very clearly the story of the gospel, that God created all things for His glory. He was in no need of His creation, yet decided to do so to display his greatness and goodness. He created man chief of all his creation to be in a covenant relationship with him to lead the entire earth in worship of their Savior. But man rejected this good and righteous God, rejected his design for the earth, and instead wanted to be gods themselves. They disobeyed him. They sought to worship themselves and the creation rather than the Creator. And since they're living in God's world and God was not living in their world, there was a punishment for such sin. That punishment was death. Yes, physical death as we experience it even now, but even more than that, eternal death separated from him in a place called hell where all those who break his law would perish and pay the just due for their sins. Yet even in Genesis 3, God makes a promise to his people. Out of the goodness and love that he has for his people, he promises that he will send one who will crush the head of the serpent, who will crush this world system the way it has been broken by man, and will do so through sacrifice, through the bruising of his heel. So all of Israel, God's people, they wait for so long for this one redeemer to come. And he does. And yet he comes in the most unspeakable, mysterious way. He comes to be born as a child. He enters into mankind, fully God and fully man. He comes himself to his people and he lives a perfect life, a life that we could not live, we do not live. And so therefore he was not deserving of the punishment of wrath from his father because he himself did not earn with no sin. Yet on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, he willingly laid his life down, taking upon himself the just wrath due for our sins and giving us the righteousness that he purchased through his perfect life. But the good news is, if he had just stayed dead, there'd be no good news. The good news is that he rose from the dead after three days in the ground to display that not only is death defeated, but life is now in Christ and life eternal. He has victory over our greatest enemy. Listen, the reality is every human being faces death. 
It has a 100% success rate with the exception of one. His name is King Jesus. And he lives evermore right now purchasing for his people and bringing before his father payment due your sins. The question is, have you placed your faith in the risen Lord today? Have you trusted in his finished work for salvation? Do you have a relationship with your king and your creator through faith? If the answer to that question is no, then it's very simple. You need to repent of your sins. That is, turn away from living your life as if you are king, as if you are God, as if all that matters is what you do, that you are the driving force and principle of what is truth in your life. Turn away from that and submitting to Jesus as your king, as your father and as the one who loves you and who leads you as Lord. And then trust in his finished work on the cross. Trust that what he did was enough to pay for your salvation and rest in that. And today you can have the life that was purchased for you in his death, burial, and resurrection. All you have to do is come forward after our service this morning and ask us more questions if you have them. Tell us that you gave your life to Jesus if you have. All you need is to turn your life over to him. There's no magical prayer you need to say. It is simply a posture of, Dear Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And today you can know that your salvation has been purchased and that you have been redeemed your life can begin anew. So if that's you this morning, if you don't know whether or not you belong to Jesus, then I would encourage you after our services, please come down, speak to somebody. We'd love to walk through this more with you, but I want to leave you that, that thought today. Friends, death is near, but Christ has conquered death, and he stands alive today at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those who are his. Are you one of those who are his?